Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go, hmm, book review podcast. I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much again for joining me for another episode. I do apologize for not getting a podcast out to you two weeks ago. Um, I was actually on, my wife and I were on vacation, so we were doing what most productive people are doing during the quarantine pandemic, uh, and we take our vacation by sitting around on the couch and watching Netflix. Okay, so <laughs> uh, I am sorry, <clears throat> but that's okay. We have another book that we're going to be reviewing for today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. So today's book is going to be uh, reviewing called The Four Tendencies. Um, the Indispensable Personality Profiles That Reveal How to Make Your Life Better by Gretchen Rubin. And I, <laughs> I have to admit, when, when I started doing, when I started really getting into these books about, I don't know, self-help, uh, behavior, economics, heuristics, I don't know, political sociology, or I don't know what kind of titles you want to give them, honestly, but basically like why do people do what they do and how we can understand this to evaluate making decisions with our own lives and how we can possibly um i don't i don't know to what extent we can gain more enjoyment from understanding these things but perhaps if you have a better understanding of why we do the things that we do at least you'll feel like you have a bit more control over your life or at least gain a bit more empathy for why other people tend to do what they do. And we know that stress is brought upon by a lack of control. Excuse me. So by eliminating um, some of the stresses, uh, we can, I don't know, maybe have a little bit of a less stress-free reduced life. Okay. So I'm kind of getting off onto a tangent there. Back to Gretchen Rubin. I never thought that Somebody like Gretchen Rubin is somebody who I was going to get very into. I She just seemed a bit, I don't know, smug and a bit overly simplistic. And I, I know, she, I think she was trained as an attorney. She's an attorney turned self-help writer. So it was, it was a little bizarre, I thought. Um, but I have to admit, I've read just about all of her books now. And all of them have made some sort of an impact on me, to be honest. Uh, she just has, she has a talent. She's able to write with clarity. She's able to express ideas and thoughts that, that really do, you know, make you wonder a bit. Now, I realize that whenever you're getting into the realm of personality tests, you're getting into some fairly murky territory about, you know, is this really, you know, would it hold up to scientific, you know, rigorous scientific study? Um, would it... I don't know if you did like these double blind uh, research analysis, is it going to hold up every time? No, probably not. But I mean, I, I don't really think, I don't think any personality test is, you know, gone through very, very, you know, strenuous, rigorous things like the, 
um, you know, Myers Briggs or the the parachute color or, or anything like that. I just think that there's a very natural tendency for humans. It's probably part of our evolutionary development to just want to categorize people into, you know, different different little groups so that we can we can have an easier time evaluating, understanding. Our brain doesn't have to spend as much energy trying to pick out the nuances of people. It would it would quite literally be impossible to get a full evaluation of all the subtleties uh, incorporated in, in every distinct human being. So I, I do find that these personality quirks um, are, are a fairly good baseline idea of how somebody may respond to something. And for the longest time, I've always went by Myers-Briggs. Um, and I know that one of the complaints about Myers-Briggs is that if you, people who have taken the Myers-Briggs at one point in their life, when they retake Myers-Briggs again years later, they get a different uh, personality um, output uh, score. So perhaps that has to do with people, you know, maybe their personalities change a little bit as they get older. I, I don't know. I've actually been taking Myers-Briggs for probably 15 years now. I've taken it at least seven or eight times, and I, I've always gotten the exact same score. So, so yeah, I, maybe I lend a bit more truth to these personality quirks than than most people do. So, let's get back to the book here. Uh, Gretchen Rubin says that there are four tendencies that people have, and when she says tendencies, I I think the way that I understand it is people's motivations for doing things. Uh, I, I I would like to think of it more as the four motivations, how people are motivated uh, by certain things. And I first came across this idea when she wrote her book about habits, which I think I also made a podcast about, if I'm not mistaken. And in the in her book about habits, this is where she first brought this this up. And I, I, by far, this was probably by far the most striking chapter because she actually fleshed this out into an entire book afterwards. And basically what she said is that people tend to be, they tend to have four tendencies for how they make their decisions. So in the first category are the people who like, uh, who are upholders. And what upholders are, they're, they're fascinating people. And they're, and according to Ruben, they're probably the rarest of the personality types. And upholders gain a strong sense of, they have a very strong sense of justice the way that society has designed it. So these are people who don't really need a lot of external uh, motivations, honestly. They, they just have a very strong sense of who they are, um, how the world is supposed to work, and what their role is supposed to be in all of this. Um, my wife is an upholder and they're fascinating people because they're able to sort of plan out exactly what they want to do with their their time, their day, their lives and they they complete their tasks simply because they believe that's what's expected of them. Now, the, um I think a lot of people who have made it to the professional level of athletics are probably upholders. My wife runs marathons. Uh, I would never, and I'll explain why in a moment, I would never be able to run a marathon. Not because, not that I'm, I would never be physically able to run a marathon, but I would never be able to work up the motivation because I have a different personality type than her. But she woke up one day, um, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago and said, you know what, I want to run a marathon. 
she began training for a marathon and the rest has been been history since that that's just that's how they approach the world they tend to be very into following through with commitments um you know attending family gatherings events uh they they pay very strict attention to rules about things and they believe that all of this is necessary in order to uphold a better society the next personality type and and this is the personality type that i personally fall under and that is the questioner um personality type and for the questioner we just (laughs) i say we uh, questioners have a deep need to have a a fundamental understanding of why people want to do things i think this matches up very closely with the myers-briggs intj which is what i fall into also and basically we need to understand the reasons behind things And if something doesn't necessarily make sense to the questioner, they're probably not going to do it. And they're they're not going to care all that much about who created the idea, how long the idea has been in place, or um, how much people even really like the idea, to be honest. Uh, It reminds me in in Myers-Briggs for the INTJ, what they say is that for the INTJ, the only thing that matters is whether something works. That's it, okay? Um, and, and the questioner is no different. And so for the questioner, they, if you can, exp- now the questioners, they do have some upholder tendencies, I would say, because they can be motivated and they will want to do something um, if they can, if it makes sense to them, if you can explain to them why their lives or somebody else's lives would be improved upon if you, if you follow, if you do X, Y, and Z. Now, each of the the four tendencies has drawbacks. So, for example, the upholder, perhaps their drawback is they are so um, they're so determined to follow the set procedure, the 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 rules of the system that that very often they can do things inefficiently simply because. Um, you know, that's the way the rules dictate. Like, I think a good example is I can remember one time we, we, my wife and I, we were traveling in Japan and we took this, we were in Tokyo and we took a train out to the, I guess the rural areas of Tokyo. And we were going to this park where they have these wild, um, deer. And so we were about to cross the street and there was literally nobody there. It was deserted this street, but there was a, there was, a um, a crossing light and she would not, even though there were no cars anywhere, she would not cross the street because the light didn't allow us to cross the street. So that, that, that would be an idea because they just don't, they don't feel comfortable upsetting the social norms. Now for me, the questioner, yes, I understand why a light is necessary and I will certainly follow those rules if the situation dictates it. However, if there's nobody on, if there's no cars coming, there's nobody on the street, as the questioner, it didn't make sense to me to wait there anymore. And so, you know, I did jaywalk and I got an earful from my wife uh, once she finally did cross the street. Um, the drawback, of course, to being a questioner is because the questioner needs to have, a, you know, they've spent hours and hours thinking about very trivial things sometimes. They can get caught up with what's called analysis paralysis. 
where they they get so into the weeds about making the right technical decision that um, very often nothing gets done. It kind of it reminds me of the um, the John Steinbeck novel. I was just thinking about this of uh, the the Steinbeck novel Cannery Row. And in the story, uh, basically what happens is, uh, I forget what the, there was this professor and he had like these friends who were kind of like these, I don't want to call them vagrants, but they, they just sort of hung around in the neighborhood and uh, didn't really seem to do much. But um, anyway, they, there's this one episode where these four friends who are, I don't know, they're kind of middle-aged and they're, they're not really working for a living. They just sit around and talk about the way the world works all day long. And they wind, they wind up getting a dog, a little puppy. And they spend like hours and hours and hours discussing theory, how to properly raise the puppy, um, what kind of food to feed it. And by the end of the story, uh, they didn't even teach, they didn't even housebreak the dog. They never even taught the dog how to use the bathroom outside. So I, I could, I think that's an extreme example, but I can totally relate as somebody who definitely gets caught up with that. Uh, whole analysis paralysis and having a very difficult time. I mean, for me, I, I mean, it's so bad that when I go out to a restaurant, I have to document what it is that I ate, how much, you know, give it a score of how much I enjoyed the meal, um, what kind of things to stay away from, just because I'm so worried about making a bad decision or, or an inefficient decision. Okay, sorry. I spent a little bit more time on questioners just because that's the the personality type that I personally fall into. Okay. The next one are personally my favorite, and I wish I could just have, you know, nothing but this this type of personality type as friends, and those are the obligers. And the obligers are very, very motivated by external motivation. They just feel a deep sense of, I don't I want to say obligation. They feel a need to make sure that other people are happy. Uh, my best friend is an obliger, and thank goodness he is because he's just such a joy to to be around because I don't feel pressure to make sure that everybody is, you know, that we're all making the right decisions all the time and I'm doing what's best for everybody. He's just very much along the lines of we play board games together. He's like, oh, what game would you like to play? Anything you want. doesn't matter. You know, hey, can... You know, are, are you hungry? Can do you want to do you want to get some takeout food? You know, do you want me to put on a you know pot of tea, whatever the case is? And it's just such a joy to be around. And obligers, uh, I, I would say that probably most of society needs to be made up of of obligers. I don't think society works otherwise, honestly. And obligers are they're just very they they really gain a sense of joy and pride from helping others. These are the people I think who are most likely to volunteer at an animal shelter. Um, these are, the, these are you know, the students. And I'll get into students in a moment because I, I am a, uh, a public school teacher by profession. But they're the students who will stay after class and, you know, wash your chalkboard, help you grade your papers. Uh, just very, very fascinating uh, people. And they gain, you know, their, their internal motivation comes from helping others. Now, like, in, like, like all the other tendencies, of course, there's going to be drawbacks to to being an obliger and that is that because they are so motivated and so willing to help other people they get taken advantage of a lot <laughs> um, we overly rely on them to do things uh, I have a co-worker who I've been friends with for you know over 10 years now and she was telling me you know she has 
um, you know, three children and she's taking care of her uncle and, you know, um, her husband has been injured. Uh, he, you know, drives as a truck driver. And she just said she feels like her whole life is focused on making other people happy constantly. And she says she likes to do it. She, you know, she loves, you know, being able to, you know, be there for people when they need them. But the drawback is, and she feels this way a lot, is sometimes they get burnout from trying to make everybody else happy. And then they can often shut down and then they don't want to help anybody either. So I, I really feel like it's important to when if you have a friend or a loved one or you yourself might be an obliger type, um, just be really careful about how much you're putting on their plate. Um, they're absolutely necessary. They're absolutely essential. They gain their they want to help you. But at the same time, because they just they have a hard time saying no, um, we have to be careful in and not overworking them or overburdening them. It reminds me a little bit of the book that I read by the educator Ron Clark and uh, Get on the Bus or the Front of the Bus or something. And he talks about, he also categorizes, he categorizes educators into four categories, the sprinters, the joggers, the, I think the walkers and the, I don't know, the couch potatoes or something. I don't remember. I, I wasn't that crazy about the book, but he was saying the same thing that in his mind, the sprinters, the people who are just going out of their way to, to you know, do more, stay up, you know, work late, um, make go, go above and beyond what's expected of them. That's what I would probably link to the the obligers. But he also said, too, that we got to be careful because they can get very stressed out and overworked. If you have people in your life who are obligers, you know, make just be just be thankful that they're in your life and be careful about how much you're you're putting on their plate because they probably won't say no. But internally, they might begin to develop some contempt if if they feel like they're being um, taken advantage of. Okay, now the last type, and this is a type that I have had a lot of personal experience with. It's Gretchen Rubin calls them the second most rare type, and those are the rebels. The reason why I have had so, the reason why I have very strong opinions about rebels, and forgive me if my um, my review of the rebels comes off as a bit negative, because I do think they they do have some place in society. Because both of my parents are rebels, unfortunately. <laughs> and two rebels usually do not work very well as a pair uh, because a lot of responsibilities that are probably necessary for for doing things, um, taking care of responsibilities just doesn't really happen. Uh, re- rebels are the sort of people who... They they almost gain a sense of pleasure by defying the rules. They don't like being told what to do ever. Um, The only time they seem to be motivated to do something is when they've either been told they can't do it or there's some rules saying that they shouldn't do something. Um, Trying to, I I have a very, I have a close friend. He's one of my best friends. I've known him for many years, over 20 years. And he's a rebel and he's been difficult to be friends with in a lot of ways. Um, Whenever I call him to ask him if he wants to hang out, even if he has nothing going on, even if he has nothing planned, okay, um, even if there wasn't anything that he was going to do on a particular day, he still will not commit to hanging out with me. The only time he will hang out with me is if... I'm like, you know, on my way somewhere and I say, hey, I'm going here. Do you, you know, do you want me to stop by and say hi? Um, 
that's the only time you can do it. If I say something like, even if it's just like two days away, like, hey, do you want, you know, it's like Thursday. Hey, do you want to hang out on Saturday? Go, go watch a movie, play some board games or something. You just can't do it. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to, but I got to see. I'm not really sure what's going on with my schedule. He, he is averse to any sort of commitment. He feels trapped by it. Okay. He's also never been married. <laughs> um, they just, they, they feel constrained by these things. Now, I'm not saying that rebels can't get married, but they certainly, I would say, they probably have to marry an obliger, <laughs> somebody who's going to love them and tolerate them for their, their really inability to um, adhere to social norms for anything. Um, now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, isn't the the questioner in the rebel, aren't they pretty similar? And aren't, aren't you really being critical of yourself? I would say no. And the reason why is because for the questioner, they'll do whatever you want them to do if you can explain why something would make sense. Uh, the rebel, they just don't like the idea of rules in general, okay? So if they, ever, I mean, don't get me wrong, rebels, we have them in our society. They work full-time jobs. They get married. They raise children. It's not a, it's not a question of whether they can follow the rules, whether they can adhere to societal norms. It's just how they feel about it internally. It's just, it's like their, their super ego is constantly telling them like, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? Um, this doesn't make any sense. What does your supervisor know anyway? <laughs> um, and it's, it's really important that if they, well, here's the best way I can explain it. Me working as a, me working as a public school teacher, having to deal with the four tendencies. And I've had all four, um, you know, I've, I've been a teacher for over 20 years. So I've, I've had all four personality types. Uh, I teach at a middle school. I've been teaching middle school most of my career. Um, and this is really where ch- children's personalities really begin to, I would say, develop is in middle school. So, for example, if I have students who are upholders, I generally, I mean, unless they have some sort of like learning deficits, uh, I, I generally don't really have to teach them. They mostly teach themselves. I put their, you know, I, I tell the students, the upholders, what the assignment is. I give them some examples of what I, I want the assignments to look like. Maybe I give a little bit of instruction and, and that's all the motivation. That, that's really all they need. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, all, they're, they're, they're children who are almost on autopilot. I like to tell their parents. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, the questioners, these are the students who can be a little annoying to work with because... I'll say something like, okay, we're going to complete these questions on, you know, page, whatever. And they'll say, well, why do we have to, you know, they're the ones who are like, why do we have to do this? Or why do you need complete sentences? Why do we have to show our work in math? And they're willing to do whatever you want them to do, but you better have some good explanations or else they're probably going to shut down and, and not participate. Um, obligers are just very motivated by external and I, and this is where, and this is something that I struggle with a bit as a questioner actually with my students, because I think the kids who are the obligers, they need a lot of positive reinforcement. You know, they, they need a lot of, wow, this was really amazing. Or your parents are going to be so proud of you or, Hey, you know what? This is such a great, um, you know, project you did. I want to hang it up on my wall for other people to see so that, you know, other people can see what a great job that you did. That's what they gain their their motivation from. That does not come naturally to me, by the way. I mean, as a questioner, I, I pretty much have the mindset of, well, you know, whether people like what I'm doing or whether they don't like what I'm doing, 
it doesn't matter. I'm getting, I'm getting my education for me and my own personal betterment. It's not, uh, I, I take a bit of a stoic approach when it comes to that. So I've had to work hard um, to go out of my way to give, to do what is unnatural to me, and that is give a lot of positive reinforcement to, to those students who I think really need it, which are typically the obliger students. And then, oh gosh, finally the rebel students. Thank goodness I don't have too many of these. Um, it would be impossible to teach otherwise. And and these are the students who, they're just not like grades and uh, sporting teams and stuff. They're just not particularly motivated by by consequences for, for not doing things. Um, they think that, that grades are mostly trivial and uh, probably don't apply that much to what they want to do in life anyway. So for me, the way that I have to handle rebels is I just tell them, like, look, you're going to have to complete these assignments if you want to pass the class. If you don't care about passing the class and you're not worried about the consequences that your parents are going to give you, then <laughs> I don't know. Just try not to disturb any of the other kids in the class. I don't, I don't really know what else to tell you. And, and usually when I, t- usually when I take that kind of a hands-off approach and they don't feel like I'm forcing them into anything, then they will be more motivated to, to want to complete these things. Now, now don't get me wrong. I mean, I do think that rebels can, can provide a very valuable service to society. I mean, I think about people like Steve Jobs or, um, Steve Jobs is the one that's that comes to mind probably because he's just the most discussed person. But just anybody who has come up with a brand new creative way of doing things that just really hadn't been thought about or implemented before, they were probably a rebel. They probably saw the way the system worked and they didn't like it and they decided they just weren't going to do it. And because of that, you know, sometimes society can make breakthroughs. But a lot of times they don't, and they can just be very frustrating to work with. Sorry, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with rebels. All right, so um, as I said before, I don't know if this is the most scientifically rigorous thing in the world. It has helped me gain a, a better insight into my own personality and other people's personalities. It's a quick read. Gretchen Rubin is, is a very talented writer when it comes to writing in a way where she takes these concepts and she puts them into these digestible bits and makes it personally, personally relatable and uh, for a really enjoyable read from people. I know that she's um, she has like her own podcasts and her own blogs and, you know, she's very prolific. She has a, a fan following and, an, uh, you know, I am one of her fans, so I'm maybe a little bit biased there. But if you want to get a, a very quick understanding of, you know, people's what type of personality types people tend to fall into not in every situation it's not always so clearly to understand but it's been useful for me and that is Gretchen Rubin and the four tendencies okay I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up um thank you again if you made it all the way to the end of the episode if it's not too much trouble whatever platform that you're listening to this whether it's Apple or Stitcher or Amazon Music or whatever the case is if you could write a nice review for me I would really appreciate it it just helps to spread my podcasts um, out further and it's validating for me to know that I'm reaching a wider and wider audience with what it is that I'm trying to do, which is to just read these nonfiction books, explain how they've been useful in my my own life, and maybe they'd be useful in your life as well. Okay, that's all for now. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I will be back in a couple weeks with another book, and until then, happy reading. (laughs) 